We're in John chapter 20. The message is believe. John chapter 20. What I'd like to do is read the uh, last two verses. We're going to look at verses 19 through 21. I'm going to read the last two verses. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get into this subject of believe. What does it mean to believe in what the Bible calls us to believe in? Does it mean you have to check your brain at the door? Are there such a thing as miracles today? And if so, where do they happen? Why do they happen? Uh, Lee Strobel's written a book called The Case for Miracles, and he said surveys are showing that four out of every ten Americans, not even evangelical Christians, are saying that they experience something like a miracle. What does that mean? Was it a coincidence? Was it luck? Or was there a supernatural hand involved? Let's keep in mind that if you're going to believe the biblical account, you're going to have to believe in a God who spoke the universe into existence by his mighty power, by the word of God, and a God who entered time and space in the person of Christ and said, destroy my body, and in three days I will raise it again. The cornerstone of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, then we are of most men to be pitied because we're still in our sins. But if Christ is alive, then everything is different. And we're going to look at that subject. First, let's read the last two verses of our text together. John 20, verses 30 and 31. John 20, verse 30. John writes, the Apostle John, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, John 20, verse 30, which are not written in this book, in the Gospel of John. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the Christos, anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God or God the Son. And that believing you may have, what's at stake? life in his name. It's whether or not you have life. First John, the same author says, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. So it does come down to whether or not you will believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for every precious person that's come into this place on this Resurrection Sunday morning. We're so grateful. We, we had a very dramatic Good Friday together. The last sound we heard was the closing of the tomb, the sealing of the tomb, the devastation and loss of someone who had changed so many lives, and everyone around him thought it was over. But we know Sunday morning did come, and Jesus Christ conquered the grave. And he said, because I live, you will live also. We know in Philippians, Paul said that Jesus' resurrection is really the prototype of ours, that we will be raised in like manner, even as Jesus was raised from the dead. And each of us, knowing a world in which death is such a sad reality, each of us looks at that reality and says, Lord, is there an answer to this ultimate dilemma of death? Will I see my loved one again? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Are there miracles? And Lord, these questions are answered emphatically in the Bible. And the question that really sits before each of us is, will we believe? We look at Israel and we know that their main problem was unbelief. They wallowed in unbelief, though they had seen many signs. And I pray that today, belief would be born in hearts that have not believed Life would come into lives where there hasn't been. And those who do know you, whether they've been wayward sheep or close followers, they would know a depth of faith and encouragement that they may have not known before. We lay this time at your feet. May it be for your glory, and may it have eternal benefits for each. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. The message, believe. The question, do miracles really happen? Quote Eric Metaxas, if miracles exist at all, they exist not for their own sake, but for us. 
to point us towards something beyond and to someone beyond. What is the case for miracles? Why should we believe the biblical account of the resurrection? There are many skeptics. We have our own questions. Men like Richard Dawkins say the following, renowned atheist. Events that we commonly call miracles are not supernatural, but are part of a spectrum of more or less improbable natural events. A miracle, in other words, if it occurs at all, is a tremendous stroke of luck, close quote. Richard Dawkins, renowned atheist, said that DNA is really what runs the universe. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. Some people are going to get sick. Other people are going to get lucky. And there's no rhyme or reason. There's no purpose. There's no thought behind it. DNA simply is, and we dance to its music. And people who take that point of view are called naturalists. And you may be surprised to find that the resurrection accounts of Sunday morning into the afternoon and evening, the disciples and those closest to Jesus, we could categorize as naturalists. Of course they were spiritual. Of course they believed in Jesus. But they did not believe in the resurrection. When the body was missing, they thought somebody stole the body. The last thing on their mind was a physical resurrection, even though Jesus had been talking about it. C.S. Lewis, well-known atheist who became the leading apologist of his generation, maybe of all time, said these words, Miracles, in fact, are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. Think about it. If the Lord created the universe, then a miracle like the resurrection of Jesus Christ or Lazarus, for that matter, is not hard at all to believe. The fact that anything exists is a miracle. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Where did the universe come from? Was it a chance explosion where we got all this complexity? Or is there a God behind it who said all you have to do is look around, look at other human beings, look into the eyes of a baby and you can see my fingerprints everywhere. Stephen Hawking said, A scientific law is not a scientific law if it holds only when some supernatural being decides not to intervene. Close quote. And John Lennox, a great Christian thinker, said, God is not a prisoner of the laws of nature. God who set the regularities there can himself feed a new event into the system from outside. Science cannot stop him from doing that, close quote. Just using the word science doesn't mean that God is no longer God. In fact, science simply means to look for truth wherever it leads you. And the truth of the matter is that some people don't want to land on the biblical revelation because it cramps their lifestyle. It may not make them look good in the eyes of their peers. But nonetheless, God says, all you have to do is look around and you will see that I am a miracle-working God. Uh, recently, Lee Strobel, who's written many books that have the case for this, the case for that, has written a book called The Case for Miracles. I heard him interviewed on a couple of programs recently. And he was sharing some of these miracle stories that he's documented in his book. I want to share a couple with you. And I'm going to play a little recording of a miracle that was caught in action. Let me share the first story with you. In equatorial Africa, far from pharmacies and hospitals, a woman died in childbirth, leaving behind a grieving two-year-old daughter and a premature baby in danger of succumbing to the chill of the night. With no incubator, no electricity, few supplies, the newborn's life was in jeopardy. A helper filled a hot water bottle to maintain the warmth of the uh, desperately needed by the infant, but suddenly the rubber burst. It was the last hot water bottle in the village. A visiting missionary physician from Northern Ireland, Dr. Helen Rosevere, asked the orphans to pray for the situation. But a faith-filled 10-year-old named Ruth seemed to go too far. 
She said, please, God, send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow. God, the baby will be dead, so please send it this afternoon. As if that request was not sufficiently audacious, she added, and while you're about it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so she'll know that you really love her? <laughs> Recalled Rosevere, I was put on the spot. Could I honestly say amen? I just not believe that I just didn't believe that God could do this. Oh yes, I know that he can do everything. The Bible says so, but there are limits, aren't there? The only hope of getting a water bottle would be from a parcel sent from the homeland. But she had never received one during the almost four years that she lived there. Anyway, she mused, if anyone did send a parcel, who would put a hot water bottle? I live on the equator. A couple of hours later, a car dropped off a 22-pound package. The orphans helped open it and sort through the contents. Some clothing for them, bandages for the leprosy patients, and a bit of food. Oh, and this, as I put my hand in again, I felt the, could it really be? I grasped it, pulled it out, and yes, a brand new rubber hot water bottle, said Rosevere. I cried. I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that he could with that little Ruth rush forward. She said, if God has sent the bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. She dug through the packaging and found it at the bottom of the parcel, a beautifully dressed doll. Asked Ruth, can I go over with you, mummy, and give this dolly to that little girl so she'll know that Jesus really loves her? The parcel had been packed five months earlier by Rose Vere's former Sunday school class. The leader, feeling prompted by God, included the hot water bottle. A girl contributed the doll. And this package... The only one ever to arrive was delivered the same day Ruth prayed for it with the faith of a child. A mere twist of fate, an embellished yarn, or perhaps a miracle. Dwayne Miller's greatest enjoyment came from preaching at a small church and singing songs of worship. It wasn't just his livelihood to lead a Baptist congregation in Brenham, Texas. It was his passion, his calling his source of joy and satisfaction. When he awoke with the flu one Sunday morning, his throat was like sandpaper and his voice would catch on his words. Each syllable was painful to speak. The flu soon disappeared, but his windpipe remained ablaze. His voice reduced to a raspy whisper. His throat felt constricted as if someone were choking him. For all practical purposes, Miller's voice was gone. No longer able to preach, he resigned from his pastorate. He eventually landed a government job researching records, a position that he then lost because of his inability to speak meant that he couldn't testify in court about his findings. Insurance stopped covering his treatments, and he faced thousands of dollars in medical bills. He said, for the first time in my life, I felt utterly useless. My income, my future, my health, my sense of well-being, all were suddenly beyond my control. It was a terrifying and humbling experience. Over three years, he was, he was examined by 63 physicians. His case was even scrutinized by a Swiss symposium of the world's leading throat specialists. The diagnosis, the flu virus destroyed the nerves of his vocal cords, rendering them limp. When Miller asked about his prognosis for recovery, a doctor told him, zero. Despite Miller's protestations, his former Sunday school class uh, at First Baptist Church of Houston prevailed on him to speak. A special microphone was used to amplify Miller's soft, hoarse, croaky voice. The class agree agreed to endure the grating sound because of their love for him and his teaching. Ironically, his text was Psalm 103, where the third verse reads, God heals all your diseases. Miller said later, with my tongue, I was saying, I still believe that God heals, but in my heart, I was screaming, but why not me, Lord? He went on to the next verse, which says, the Lord redeems your life from the pit. He told the class, I've had, uh, I have had and you have had in times past pit experiences. As soon as he said the word pit, the choking sensation disappeared. Now for the first time in three years, he said, I could breathe freely. 
I heard a gasp from the crowd, and that's when I too realized my voice had come back. I could hear myself. His stunned audience began to clap and cheer, shout and laugh. His wife, Joylene, broke down in tears. I don't understand this right now, Miller stammered with a fresh new voice. The dramatic moment of Miller's recovery has been captured on an audio tape, which went viral. Subsequent doctor examinations showed his throat looks like it never had any problems. In fact, against all odds, even the scar tissue had disappeared. One physician said, even if I could explain how you got your voice back by coincidence, which I can't, I could never explain what happened to the scar tissue. Today, Miller is pastor of Pinnacle Church, serving the Cedar Creek Lake area of Texas. Ironically, he also hosts a daily program on a Dallas radio station, yes, using his voice to tell others about the God who he is convinced still performs miracles. And speaking of miracles, he says, God didn't just restore my life, he amplified it. I want you to hear the recording of that Sunday school class on that day when Miller got his miracle. So when the psalmist writes, and he heals all of my diseases, let me say to you that I believe God still heals. That hasn't ended. That is not over. Now you have to be careful on how you do this because there are folks who carry things to an excess and it becomes a show. And God has never intended that that be what it is. God heals in his sovereign will. I don't know why God does things that he does, but I know that he does. And the only thing he requires of me is to allow him to be God and me to be me and let it be. To say that every single person will always be healed because Jesus died on the cross is a misinterpretation of scripture. Not true, won't work. Isaiah 53 doesn't talk about physical healing. I'm sorry, that's just not the context. And to impress that there causes a misinterpretation of scripture. That's wrong. On the other hand, to say that, since we don't have anything after the book of Acts, that miracles ended at the book of Acts and they never happen again is equally as wrong. Because you have put God in a box both ways. And he doesn't want to be in the box. So, the psalmist says, I'm excited. Bless the Lord, O my soul. One of his benefits is he heals all of my diseases. And then in verse 4 he says, and he redeems my life from the pit. Now, I like that verse just a whole lot. I have had, and you have had in times past, pit experiences. We've both had, we've all had times when our life seemed to be in a pit, in a grave. And we didn't have an answer for the pit we find ourselves in. And I don't understand this right now. I'm but overwhelmed at the moment. I'm not quite sure what to say or do. <laughs> I'm uh, Sounds funny to say at a loss for words. <laughs> you can pause it right there. Um, I would invite you, if you uh, Google Pastor Dwayne Miller's name, you can hear the rest of what he says, but right in the middle of talking about healing and, and making sure that he was theologically correct to say that, that God doesn't always heal, he got healed. 
And uh, you can tell just by the gravity of the weight of what he's feeling at that moment. And the people that are in that room at a small little Bible study that had invited him because they loved him so much heard him get healed in the middle of a Bible study where he was making sure he was careful about teaching about healing. Now, there are many, many miracle stories that I'm sure even some of you could come up and share, but I want to focus the rest of our time on the miracle story of the resurrection because that is what really we're being called to believe, believe in who Jesus is and what the Bible says about him. And we pick up the story in John 20, verse 19. When therefore it was evening, this is the evening of the resurrection day, so Sunday evening, if you will. On that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Shalom, or peace be with you. Now, the day of the resurrection was a day of fear and trembling for the disciples. They had heard reports that the tomb was empty. They had even heard resurrection uh, accounts, but they saw them as idle tales or literally nonsense. They would not believe them. The women came and were telling them stories of angels and that the risen Lord had appeared, but they were shut behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. Since the Jews had crucified their master, and Jesus had said earlier in John, a servant is no greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they crucified me or they they will crucify me uh, without a cause, what about you? You're not greater than me. So the natural proclivity towards self-preservation took hold of them. They killed the prince of life. They couldn't have imagined at the end of that week, as glorious as it started with the triumphal entry and the Hosanna cries and thinking he was going to restore Israel to its glory and take back, uh, take back Israel from the Romans and sit on the throne of David forever. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the week, after Jesus had thwarted all these uh, questions and shut down all the investigation against him, now he had died. And they were behind Closed doors, you could see it as a prison of fear. And sometimes that's what happens to us. We lock ourselves in a prison of fear because of the fear of death to which Hebrews 2 says mankind is in slavery all of their lives. You don't have to be behind a physical door to be in slavery. And a lot of people are enslaved by their fears. And the disciples were doing that very thing. Jesus had told them, I will rise. But they were behind closed doors. They were fearful of their own demise. What's going to happen to us? The doors were locked. And that would seem to indicate that Jesus supernaturally entered the room. And Jesus, the first thing he says is, peace. Don't you love the Lord? Shalom, brothers. It's like, that's what we need. We need some peace, please. See, they had forgotten something important about Jesus. He had promised to defeat death, and there he was. And the question is, will they believe? Into the midst of their fears came the Prince of Peace, and he can do that for you and for me. I found in many times of my life, and I've been overwhelmed by fear, It's been the Prince of Peace that has given me what I need. A peace that passes understanding. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You see, we live in a world where there is a real spiritual battle and we deal with our flesh, the world, the enemy. Sometimes we feel down about life. Sometimes we disappoint ourselves. Sometimes fear has become even something that we've known as our best friend. But the Prince of Peace knew where they were emotionally, spiritually, and even geographically. The Lord can meet you and me in our times of fear. Peace be with you. I pray that you can realize that for yourself. In fact, when we put on the armor of God, one of the things we put on is the sandals or shoes of peace. The enemy would like to steal our peace from us, but God gives us peace. And when Jesus had given this this greeting of peace, verse 20, John 20, he showed them both his hands and his side. 
The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Oftentimes in our lives, fear and doubt intersect. And Jesus had told these guys on many occasions, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But look, it's one thing for someone to tell you not to be afraid. It's another thing to find that you can conquer fear by your faith in Christ. And so they needed proof on so many levels. Isaiah 53, 5, written 700 years before Jesus was born, says, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. And in order to quell their fears, the Messiah who entered the room showed them the marks of the cross. He showed them the imprint of the nails, which would probably have gone through his wrist, and the wound, the spear wound of his side which affirms the biblical account that the body that came out of the tomb was the body that went into the tomb. The Bible teaches a literal, physical resurrection of the same body that died is the body that rose. There's no reason that Jesus would have shown the wound marks in his hands and his side unless it was his same body. I mention this because there are other groups who deny the physical resurrection, like our Jehovah's Witness friends, who say that when Jesus died, his body was disintegrated by Jehovah into gases, and he came out as a spirit being. And he simply had to manifest holes to convince the disciples and Thomas about who he was. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, destroy this body. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between what dies and what rises. In fact, when Paul teaches on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, he uses an illustration from plant life or botany. And he says, look, it's like a seed plant analogy. What goes into the ground is a seed. What comes out is a plant. And even though the plant looks different from what was planted in the seed, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between what was planted and what rises. You will be you in the resurrection. Just a perfect version of you, hopefully about the age of 18, can I get a witness? Right? I remember those days when I could leap tall buildings in a single bound, when I could eat anything any time of day, and I didn't gain weight. I ate burritos at midnight regularly. Now I look at them and I gain five pounds. It's just not right. You see, their salvation had come into the room, and he showed them that he had been wounded for their transgressions and for ours. Jesus therefore said to them again, 21, peace be with you. It's like they needed to hear it again. They had to be freaked out by what they were seeing. Peace be with you. And then mission. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I want you to have peace. Yes, peace in me. But I want you to be now messengers of the message of peace. In fact, if you are an evangelist, essentially what you are doing is telling people how to have peace with their maker. The world has been separated from God by sin. Sin causes separation. It causes spiritual death. And we need to be made alive again. And that's what the ministry of Jesus does. But we bring the good news to other people. We say, you can have peace with God. Yes, our sins have alienated us from God, but we have peace through the blood of his cross. Will you believe? And when we share the gospel, that's what we're calling people to believe, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not believe us, not believe the church, but believe the biblical account to believe what Jesus said. Now, the same... Uh, a, uh, occasion is in the Gospel of Luke. One book back to Luke 24. I just want to show you this. I'm not going to have you turn too much today, but this is Luke 24, 44. I want to show you what happened here as Jesus... Uh, actually, we're going to go back to verse uh, 2436. 2436 in the Gospel of Luke. Now, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst, and the, the ones telling were the two on the road to Emmaus who had seen the, the risen Lord and had an experience with him. And they were, ex they were uh, sharing those experiences. And while they were telling these things, he, stood, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought what? 
that they were seeing a spirit. Remember earlier when Jesus walked on the water? They said, it's a ghost. Literally, it's a phantasma. And Jesus said, no, it's me. Calm down. It's cool, boys. Loose translation, right? And here he says, no, look, it's me. Peace be to you. But they were frightened. They thought they were seeing a spirit. Maybe somebody impersonating the Lord. Maybe a spirit that had come to kill them. Maybe it was the death angel. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Check this out. This is verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they stood, they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, this is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Do you have anything to eat? <laughs> Praise the Lord. This is evidence that we will eat in the resurrection body. Come on. Can I get a witness? Spaghetti, pizza, more than 31 flavors of ice cream. And now, to add to my panoply of likes, frozen yogurt. And the toppings. The toppings that you can put onto the yogurt. See, I have to leave, a, I just eat a little bit off the top. So then I can put a, the sprinkles and the chocolates and the, the, oh, the cookies in the way. Oh. I have witnessed to more people in yogurt shops lately than anywhere else. In fact, not too long ago, I went to a local place that I've become a regular at. And I heard a voice. I was trying to secretly, I had big sunglasses on. Pour my yogurt, and someone said, Pastor Michael? And I said, yes. Yes, child, it is I. <laughs> and they said, it's true, you do eat frozen yogurt. And I was like, yeah, I tell the truth from the pulpit, man. It's true. Anyway, back to John. So Jesus ate a piece of broiled fish. Another version says a honeycomb in their presence. And he is now before them. Just think of how excited they had to be, how thrilled, how much pressure fell off their shoulders. And this is a foretaste of what's going to happen when we see the Lord. Because right now, I know you and I sometimes have our doubts. Let's admit it. Sometimes we have days where like, okay, is what I believed in real? Is heaven real? Sometimes I have question marks just like you with the news reports I hear and Things that I pray about that God doesn't always answer. Not everybody gets a miracle. But the ultimate miracle is being born again and knowing we're headed to heaven. And so when he had said this, when he had shown, him, shown them his wounds and given them this greeting of peace for the second time, when he had said this, 22, back in John 20, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You see... If you're going to be able to be successful in a mission, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And while there's a little debate in the church about what exactly happened here, here's what I will say. This was minimally a foretaste of what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost. When they would receive power from the Holy Spirit and they would go out into Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the very place where they were hiding in fear, and they would have resurrection power from the Holy Spirit. Until God touches us, we won't be effective in mission. We need the breath of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's something that's been missing in your life or even your ministry. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he said, Woe is me, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. And remember, the Lord then says, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord. Send me. You cannot go out into the marketplace of ideas, the highways and byways, unsustained by the power of God. But once you have the power of God, nothing else is going to stop you. 
Because God's power is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's God himself working in your life, empowering you to do what you couldn't do on your own. See the idea of he breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit? The word spirit there is ruach. The, uh, that's the Hebrew word, pneuma in Greek. And it can mean breath or wind. And Jesus gave them a taste, if you will, of the wind of the Spirit, the breath of God. The power of the Holy Spirit is God's very power, giving you what you need to carry out the ministry to which he's called you. And the Holy Spirit will come and give you what you need in moments of fear and doubt. And then he says these words which have perplexed many. If you forgive the sins of any, 23, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What is Jesus saying? What power is he giving to his church? What authority do they actually have? Well, I think this is simply that they are getting the keys to the kingdom. As God's representatives, we can say this in 2,000 years of church history. When the gospel is proclaimed, I can say to you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, every sin that you've ever forgiven will be, uh, ever, ever committed will be forgiven you. I can say that on the authority of Scripture, that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses. This is what God promises. Now, am I the one forgiving people's sins? Nope. No one can forgive sin but God alone. I can't forgive your sin, and I can't retain your sin. I can't say, oh, you're not forgiven. If you do what the Bible says, then you are forgiven. But I can also say on the authority of Scripture, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to what? Die in your sins. Now, again, I'm not the one keeping your sin on you, but I am with biblical authority saying to you, you can be forgiven if you trust in Christ, but you're going to die in your sin if you don't. And it's in in that uh, sense that the church is given this authority. And I would just say to you, please don't die in your sins. What does it mean to die in your sins? It means instead of you trusting that your sins were put upon Christ at the cross and he experienced the judgment of God for you, you decide not to accept that sacrifice and so you, your sins remain on you. And if they remain on you, instead of going to Christ, then you're going to die in them. And then you're going to stand before God and God is going to judge you by the Ten Commandments. Those are just the top ten, by the way. There's 613 commandments and sub-commandments. The top ten are tough enough, amen? Like, don't lie. Don't steal. It doesn't matter if it's a paperclip. Don't, Jesus even said, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. How many of you have had a problem with coveting before? You don't want to admit it, but you walk into somebody's home and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Driving somebody's car, oh, yeah, I want that. I want that. It doesn't matter if you admit it or not, you're coveting. You ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Even if you whisper it or say it in your mind, God hears. Oh, we've all broken the Ten Commandments. Don't die in your sin. Because if you do, you're going to face God in His holiness and wrath. And He is holy. Our God's a consuming fire. And yet, this God who is holy came down and took the wrath for you and for me. He who knew no sin became sin. That we might have righteousness in God through Jesus Christ. Well, Thomas, and there's always a Thomas, this is verse 24, there's always a Thomas in the group, one of the 12 called Didymus or the twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus made this evening appearance, but Thomas was not there. Now, what do we know about Thomas? Well, his name means the twin. And uh, Thomas, there's a few occasions when we can see him in the Bible in uh, Jesus heading for Judea, Thomas urged his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. That's John eleven sixteen. 16. Pretty bold guy, right? And then it was Thomas who famously in John 14 said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? John 14, 5. And Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. Aren't you glad that Thomas asked the question? Thomas was like the person in class, the teacher's doing the, the formula on the chalkboard, and everybody, I don't know what in the world is going on here. I don't know that equation. I don't know what that teacher's talking about. You want to hear a miracle story? Check this out. Everyone had high hopes for Benjamin after he finished third in his class at a predominantly black high school and scored the highest SAT ranking of any student in the 20 years from a Detroit public school. He could only afford the $10 admission fee to apply to one college, so he chose Yale University, was granted a full scholarship. He thought he was pretty hot stuff until the end of his first semester. Ben was failing chemistry, a prerequisite in fulfilling his dream of becoming a physician. Everything depended on the final exam, but he wasn't ready for it, not by a long shot. That evening, he prayed, Lord, medicine is the only thing I ever wanted to do. He said, would you please tell me what it is that you really want me to do? He intended to study for the exam all night, but sleep overcame him. All seemed lost until he had a dream. He was alone in an auditorium when a nebulous figure began writing chemistry problems on the blackboard. When I went to take the test the next morning, it was like the twilight zone, he recalled. I recognized the first problem as one of the ones I had dreamed about, and the next, and the next, and the next. I aced the exam and got a good mark in chemistry, and I promised the Lord he would never have to do that for me again. Can I get a witness? Anybody ever done that with a test? Oh, Lord, I didn't study. Oh, Lord, help. Now, Ben went on to achieve his goal of becoming a physician, by the age of 33, he became the youngest director of pediatric neurosurgery in the country, performing pioneering operations at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He separated twins conjoined at the brain, performed the first successful neurosurgery on a fetus, developed new methods of treating brainstem and spinal cord tumors, and he was awarded the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. 2004 poll ranked Benjamin Solomon Carson Sr. as among the 10 most admired people in America. He even made a bid to become president of the United States, achieving front-runner status in the Republican primary for a season. All because a dream helped him pass a chemistry course nearly 50 years ago. What do you think? Was this a coincidence? A tall tale exaggerated to promote a political career or a miraculous intervention by God. Next time you hear Ben Carson speak, remember the Lord did a miracle in his life as well. Well, as we look at the, the Bible, we can see Thomas not there, right? And so this sets up what's going to happen as we come now towards the end of the message. The other disciples therefore were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, you guys said you saw those? Put my finger, I'm going to one-up you, put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hands into his side, unless I see it, I will not believe. Do you have a friend like that? Family member? Maybe that's you. I need objective evidence. Look, the miracles are all around you if you want to open your eyes, but I do understand those of you who are Thomases by nature. And the Bible actually invites investigation. Do you know the man that I'm reading the quotes from was an atheist? Worked for the Chicago Tribune. He was trained in law. And uh, he went on a quest to disprove Christianity. He thought he could do it in a weekend. That's how pompous he was. And as he began his investigation, you know the story of Lee Strobel. He was convinced that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and became a believer. And, of course, the Lord's using his life to change the lives of many people around the globe. Well, they, they said, they, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, you give me proof or I won't believe. I want proof. He was adamant about his belief requirements. Give me proof and I'll believe. I'm not so sure says R. Kent Hughes, I think the world's view is more like, show me the facts and I'll invent another theory, close quote. But Thomas asked a question for all of us on that day. He wanted to see. Maybe you're like Thomas. 
You have objective evidences that you want to see. But this account was written that you may believe. Now, Thomas had to wait a while because it says, After eight days, again his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut. Now, I, I like to imagine the eight days in between Thomas's uh, statement, Unless I see the prince and touch him, I won't believe. What happened in those eight days? How many arguments do you think took place? They're saying, come on, Thomas, come on, man, come on, bro, we saw him. Thomas like, nope, not going to believe. Nope. And isn't it interesting that Thomas was doing to them what they had done to the women? It's always inconvenient when someone does to you what you did to somebody else. Come on, bro, won't you believe? The women were probably in the corner going, oh, yeah, now it's easy for you to say. <laughs> we were the ones that came to you and were telling you that he was written from the dead Right? Yeah, but now it's us. We've seen it now. Well, I'm sure there was a lot of debates, a lot of back and forth. I don't know if they were arguing when Jesus showed up or praying, but Jesus did say in Matthew 18, 20, where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. And when they were there inside 26, Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors were shut, seems a supernatural entry again. He stood in their midst, and <laughs> this is his greeting, and he said, peace be with you. Now, I want you to think for a moment what Thomas's eyes looked like at that moment. And maybe he was thinking, I wonder how much he's hurt me this week as I've <laughs> laid down my requirement. I will not believe it. I will not. Thomas, come into my office. We're going to have a little discussion. Now, I see this as the Lord's grace, not that he was beating up Thomas, but that he met Thomas where he was in his doubts and fears. I wonder how long Jesus listened to their conversation before he made his appearance. And then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. Be not unbelieving, but believing do you think Thomas quickly extended his hand? The record does not tell us that Thomas ever touched him. See, at that moment, Thomas didn't need to touch him because Thomas was seeing the risen Lord right in front of him. And he got a personal visit, if you will. How many of you saw the movie Risen? It came out a couple of years ago. There's a, one of the characters in Risen is a guard. He's a Roman guard. And uh, he watched Jesus die, and I think he was in involved at the crucifixion site. I'm not sure if he nailed the, nailed the nails into Jesus, but the, they keep flashing to Jesus' dead eyes. There's no life. And he's pursuing the apostles to shut down this so-called, you know, fringe group. And he ends up in this house, and he enters in, he's got a sword, and he's going to take some people out. And he looks, and Jesus is sitting there. And he can see the, see the nail prints. And he flashes back to the scene when he was dead on the cross. And he knew he was dead, and he saw the spear go into him. And now he's sitting there alive, and he's invited in. And he runs out of the house, and the other guards are, are they in there, are they in there? And he goes, no, 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 just move on. And he walks into the house, and he, he can't stop looking at Jesus. And he, he puts his back against the wall. And he just slides down the wall. And, and there's no words. Imagine if you were there. Imagine if you went through that week, what your faith would have looked like. Do not disbelieve, believe, ESV. Stop doubting, believe, NIV. Don't be faithless any longer, New Living Translation. John MacArthur writes, Jesus lovingly met Thomas at his point of weakness Thomas's actions indicated that Jesus had to convince the disciples rather forcefully of his resurrection. They were not gullible people predisposed to believing in resurrection. The point is that they would not have fabricated or it or hallucinated it since they were so reluctant to believe even with the evidence they could see. Thomas says, uh, Jesus says to Thomas, go ahead, Thomas, touch me. And Thomas answered, in these historic words that will ring down the annals of time, he said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. 
And you know what Thomas was declaring? You are God in human flesh. You are the Lord. Thomas was overwhelmed. The man who was reluctant and had his belief demands now was compelled to say that Jesus is my Lord and my God. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. If you cannot say that, then you cannot claim the rest of the promises of Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. But if you say the Lord is my shepherd, then you can say, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord for how long? Forever. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is God in human flesh. And these things have been written that you may believe that he is the Christ. Now at this point, for the naysayers who say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never allowed people to call him God. Well, Thomas just said that. And some people, trying to wiggle out of it, said, well, maybe Thomas was just having like a valley boy moment. Maybe he saw the risen Lord and did something like this. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my God. <laughs> Please. If you're that desperate to find an answer, you may want to look at Christ again. Because no first century Jew would ever do that. They wouldn't even pronounce the name of God. That's why the name of God uh, has the, the uh, what is it, the vowels without the, co the consonants without the vowels because the, the name of God was holy to them. They started just calling him the name, Hashem. See, Thomas is making a declaration, and if Jesus is not Lord and God, right now Jesus could have said, oh, Thomas, hold on, wait, time out. I, I'm not God. I'm not the Lord God. I'm not, I'm not claiming that. No. Instead of correcting Thomas, he commends him. Please see it. He said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Earlier at our sunrise, we saw John just seeing the empty tomb believed. And this verse is for all of us who have come subsequent to this. We haven't seen Jesus with our physical eyes, but one day my faith will be my eyes. One day I will see him. I've seen him with my eyes of faith. I've experienced him in my life. And even though I haven't seen him, 1 Peter 1 and 8, 1, 8 and 9, I believe. I love him. Even though I haven't seen him, I love him because he first loved me. But one day my faith, I walk by faith and not by sight, will be my eyes. And I will look upon him. And I will look into his face. And I will see, I believe I'm going to see the scars in his hands and his feet because the same body in which he resurrected, he ascended into heaven and he's coming again in like fashion. We're going to see the Lord. We're going to have an upper room, if this is where this happened, upper room experience. Do you believe? If you do, the Bible says, blessed are you, even though you haven't seen him physically. Yet you love him. And I know this room is filled with people who are in that category. Now, many other signs Jesus also performed 30 in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Would you flip over to John 21? Look at verse 24, quickly. John 21, 24. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his witness is true. There are also many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail, I suppose, says John, that even the world itself could not contain the books which were written. Now, before we tackle the last verse, I want to share a final story um, with you. And this is uh, an amazing story about a woman who was dying. Strobel says, Keener went on to discuss another case not in his book, for which there's significant documentation. I've personally interviewed Barbara, who was diagnosed at the Mayo Clinic with progressive multiple sclerosis. Keener said, I confirmed the facts with two physicians who treated her. There are numerous independent witnesses to her condition and years of medical records. In fact, two of her doctors were so astounded by her case that they've written, uh, they've written uh, about it in books. One of the physicians, Dr. Harold P. Adolph, 
a board-certified surgeon who performed 25,000 operations in his career, declared, quote, Barbara was one of the most hopelessly ill patients I ever saw. Another physician, Dr. Thomas Marshall, an internist for 30 years until his recent retirement, described Barbara as a budding gymnast in high school playing the flute in the orchestra, uh, but symptoms began appearing. She would trip, bump into walls, was unable to grasp the rings in gym class. Eventually, after her condition worsened, the diagnosis of progressive multiple sclerosis was confirmed through spinal taps and other diagnostic tests. After thoroughly examining her case, doctors at the Mayo Clinic agreed with the dire diagnosis. The prognosis was not good, Marshall said. Over the next 16 years, her condition continued to deteriorate. She spent months in hospitals, often for pneumonia after being unable to breathe. One diaphragm was paralyzed, rendering a lung non-functional. The other lung operated at less than 50%. A trachostomy tube was inserted into her neck with oxygen pumped from canisters in her garage. She lost control of her urination and bowels. A catheter was inserted into her bladder, and an ilostomy was performed with a bag attached for her bodily waste. She went legally blind, unable to read, only capable of seeing objects as a gray shadow, and feeding, a feeding tube was inserted into her stomach. Her abdomen was swollen grotesquely because the muscles of her intestines did not work, Adolf said. She now needed continuous oxygen. Her muscles and joints were becoming contracted and deformed because she could not move or exercise them, Marshall said. Mayo Clinic was her last hope, but they had no recommendations to help stop this progressive wasting disease except to pray for a miracle. By 1981, she, had been, uh, able to, uh, she hadn't been able to walk for seven years. She was confined to bed, her body twisted like a pretzel in a fetal position. Her hands were permanently flexed to the point that her fingers nearly touched her wrists. Her feet were locked in a downward position. Marshall explained to her family that it was just a matter of time before she would die. They agreed not to do any heroics, including CPR or further hospitalization. To keep her alive, this would only prolong the inevitable. Barbara entered hospice care in her home with a life expect expectancy of less than six months. One day, someone called in Barbara's story to the radio station of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. A request was broadcast for listeners to pray fervently for her. Some 450 Christians wrote letters to her church saying that they were lifting Barbara up in prayer. On Pentecost Sunday, 1981, her aunt came over to read her some of the letters in which people offered prayers for healing. Two girlfriends joined them. Suddenly, during a lull in the conversation, Barbara heard a man's voice speak from behind her, even though there was nobody else in the room. The words were clear and articulate and spoken with great authority, but also with great compassion. Marshall wrote, the voice said, my child, get up and walk. Seeing that Barbara had become agitated, one of her friends plugged the hole in her neck so she could speak. I don't know what you're going to think about this, Barbara told them, but God just told me to get up and walk. I know he really did. Run and get my family. I want them here with us. Her friends ran out and yelled for her family, come quick, come quick. Marshall described what happened next. Barb felt compelled to do immediately what she was divinely instructed, so she literally jumped out of bed and removed her oxygen. She was standing on legs that had not supported her for years. Her vision was back. She was no longer short of breath. Even without her oxygen, her contractions were gone, and she could move her feet and hands freely. Her mother ran into the room and dropped to her knees, feeling uh, Barbara's calves. You have muscles again, she exclaimed. Her father came in and hugged her and whisked her off for a waltz around the family room, Marshall said. Everyone moved to the living room to offer a tearful prayer of thanksgiving, although Barbara found it hard to sit still. That evening, there was a worship service at the Wheaton Wesleyan Church where Barbara's family attended. Most of the congregation knew about Barbara's grave condition. 
During the service, when the pastor asked if anyone had announcements, Barbara stepped into the center aisle, casually strolled toward the front, her heart pounding. A cacophony of whispers came from all parts of the church. Marshall said, people started clapping, and then, as if led by a divine conductor, the entire congregation began to sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The next day, Barbara came to Marshall's office for an examination. Seeing her in the hallway, walking toward him, he said, I thought I was seeing an apparition. He recalled, no one had ever seen anything like this before. He told Barbara, this is medically impossible, but you are now free to go and live out your life. A chest x-ray that afternoon showed her lungs were already perfectly normal. The collapsed lung completely expanded, The intestine that had been vented to the abdominal wall was reconnected normally. Adolf said she was eventually restored to complete health. Barbara has now lived 35 years with no recurrence of her illness. She subsequently married a minister and feels her calling in life is to serve others. Both physicians marvel at her extraordinary recovery. I've never witnessed anything like this before or since and consider it a rare privilege to observe the hand of God Performing a true miracle, Marshall wrote. Said Adolf, both Barbara and I knew he had healed her. Now I want to say to you, yes, I want to say to you that I know some of you have not, you've prayed for a long time and you've not gotten a physical healing. And I think we need to balance this by saying that miracles are called miracles for a reason because they're the exception and not the rule. But I will tell you this, that being born again of the Holy Spirit in and of itself is a miracle. And the Bible does not say that heaven rejoices when one person gets a physical healing. The Bible actually says that the angels and God himself rejoice when one sinner does what? Comes to repentance. Do you believe? Do you need more evidence to know that God made everything and that you're made in his image? Do you need any more evidence to know that Jesus Christ is God, and he's alive, and he still saves? Do you need any more to go on to know that your life has value if you will simply put your trust in him, if you will believe, and that's what the word believe means, to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. You see, these have been written that you make it personal, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus Christ is alive, and he still saves, and he saves people in Corona, California, and he can save you right now. Believe and live. Believe and live. Jesus says, believe in me and you'll be blessed. I'll show you life. I'll give you life and that more abundantly. The greatest miracle we can experience is the new birth. And if you haven't believed before, today's your day. The Lord's brought you here for a reason. Maybe you haven't been to church for a long time. Maybe you're a backslidden Christian. Maybe you had a profession of faith, but you weren't alive in Christ. Or maybe you've just been wandering for years. Maybe you were hurt or wounded or God somehow didn't come through to your expectations. Look, we understand But God wants to heal you today of the ultimate disease, which is sin and death. It's 100% deadly, 100% of the time. It's the sin virus. It's going to kill you. But Jesus Christ came to deal with your sin. And if you will believe in him, you will pass from death to life. Will you believe? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the precious people that have come to this place on this Resurrection Sunday morning. Thank you that you are alive and that you still save, that you're at the right hand of the Father, interceding for your people, and that you are someone who says you've come to seek and to save that which was lost. This room is filled with many Christians, but there may be some here who have not met you, and they want to know you. We had some people do that at our sunrise service, and this was their day. And they, they kind of planned it. They said, yeah, this is going to be the time that I ask Jesus to be my Savior, my Lord, and my God. If that's you, I'm going to give you a prayer. It's very simple. But I would ask you to pray it.
to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Something this simple, but this can change your life and eternity forever. Something like this, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe that you are Lord and God. Pray it if it's you. I turn from my sin, my unbelief, my rebellion, and I place my trust in you. Please save me and forgive me. Make me your child. Be my Savior, my Lord, my King, my God, my friend. Lord, lead me the way you would have me to go. Change my heart. Give me a new start in Jesus' name. Maybe you're a backslidden Christian. You've fallen away and you just want to come home. It's something very similar. Just do some business with the Lord. Just tell him you want to come back. You want to come home. And he will hear your cry. He's so gracious. Father, thank you for hearing the prayers of folks who maybe even prayed silently in their heart. May you bless them. May they be blessed in believing. Thank you for this wonderful community at Living Truth. May you continue to use this fellowship to bring you glory and to share the good news of the hope found in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Would you stand?